You're listening to the audio from Tuesday Night Class at CA Church, located in Coquitlam, British Columbia. We hope this teaching helps you grow in your personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Okay, well welcome to week five of Water from a Deep Well. We are humming along and looking at a lot of different things. And uh, tonight we are going to be looking at the theme of rhythm. Last week, uh, Mike uh, led us through the, uh, the rhythm of the, uh, the desert and solitude. Uh, today, we're going to talk about rhythm. And uh, there's no better person to teach about rhythm than me because I have so much rhythm. No, I don't. <laughs> I don't have rhythm. Um, but we're going to be talking about uh, the spirituality of monasticism. And so our starting point, uh, again, is Acts chapter 2. In Acts chapter 2, we read, All who believed were together and had all things in common. Day by day, as they spent much time together in the temple, they broke bread at home and ate their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having the goodwill of all people. So let's pray. Jesus, we come before you, recognizing that we are completely dependent upon you. You are our refuge and our strength. You are a very present help in times of trouble. And we will not be afraid, though the mountains crumble into the sea, but instead we will be still and know that you are God. We pray that you would speak to us tonight, that this wouldn't just be a travel through the days of yore, but it would be um, looking at our own life and the rhythms or the lack of rhythms we have. So speak to us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so, hey, Carlin. If you want, you can grab a chair, spread out. Uh, Again, we uh, spread out as much as you want. Um, okay, let me, let me begin by asking you a question. Um, what for you is a perfect Christian life? What would a perfect Christian, you know, I don't want the answer to be Jesus. Uh, what would the, a perfect Christian life look like for you? What is something that you would want to have as part of your life to make your Christian life better? What would that look like? So you guys put it in the chat if you want, or you can say something, but I'll probably see it better if it's in the chat. Inner peace. Yeah, very good. Wow. Inner peace. Um, Yeah, that's good. What else? What was it? Living a life of complete service, to be so other-focused, yeah, that's good. Feeling the love. Yeah, feeling the love. Yeah, that's good. I like that. Um, contentment. Everyone believing that Jesus is Lord and trying to live according to his example. So this longing for more and more people to know about the truth of Jesus. Good. Good. 
Now, how can we as Christians, as followers of Jesus Christ, how can we live the Christian life in a world that's increasingly hostile towards Christianity? How can we live our life in the world yet somehow keep our hearts intact? What are, how, how can we do that? It takes a lot of work. Okay, so to, to be immersed, to, to allow yourself to be immersed in God's word, to shape how you see the world as you're living in a world that's increasingly hostile. Okay, good. Yeah, so allow God's word to really speak to you. What else? Yeah, to really dive into prayer. Um, and, and allow our relationship with God through prayer to reorient how we see the world. Absolutely. Very good, yes. Yeah, Carlin was saying to find other people who also believe and surround ourselves with other believers to remind each other, at very least, that we're not crazy for believing what we believe. Yeah, absolutely to stay focused on God, to live for Him, yeah? Um, don't lose your model from Jesus to the world. Don't let the surrounding world teach you. Live in the presence of God, that's very good. I mean, those are important questions because I think it's getting increasingly difficult in our world to live and to walk with Jesus. It's getting difficult. Um, there, I came across an interesting expression. Let's see if I can find it. I wrote it down because it's, it's such a, an interesting one. Um, <laughs> where is it? Uh, huh. I can't find it. Oh, yeah. Somebody said that by, when they spend too much time on social media, when they t spend too much time on the screen, what happens is this is how they feel. They feel, I love this quote, they feel thrown around inside. Isn't that an interesting phrase? I feel thrown around inside. I thought, what a beautiful description for how I feel after being on social media too long. I feel thrown around inside. Isn't that a cool expression? Well, today we're going to be looking at spiritual rhythms. And we're going to do so by looking at monasticism. Now, if you guys were here, you would have heard some very cool monastic music that I was playing. I was rocking the joint with monastic music, yes. Uh, how many of you online or here uh, have ever visited a monastery? Is it, always, is it the one in Mission? Yeah. Okay, so how many of you have ever stayed at a monastery? Overnight, have you, Merle? Yeah, you stayed at the monastery overnight. Well, when you work for B, that's so interesting. You did, were you able? To, you probably weren't able to eat with the. Yeah. With, you ate with the with the monks. Wow, look, that's very cool. That's very cool. Um, what was the experience like? Can, very quiet. <laughs> it is so quiet. By the end of your time at a monastery, you want to talk to people. You really do. 
Even if you're an introvert, absolutely. I've stayed at um, the Abbey in Mission uh, a handful of times. And uh, it's, it's very interesting. It's, so you're, it's, it's, a, it's a Benedictine monastery, and I'll explain what that means in a second. But um, it is, it's a very different experience. I found that when I was eating a meal, because everything's done in silence, and everybody knows what they're doing except for me, all I did was I stayed one and a half seconds behind everyone else. And so when everybody stood up, I kind of stood up. When everybody sat down, when everybody prayed, pray, you know, I just kind of, because I had no idea what to do. Um, yeah, but it, it was quite interesting. Let me just share this one thing about, the, just one more thing about the monastery that I found interesting. Uh, we'll, we'll learn this, but in a Benedictine monastery, you don't speak when you're eating your meals because it's time for you to reflect and to listen and to, to learn. And so while you're having a meal, there's somebody who's elevated in, in the uh, dining hall who's reading the minutes from some meetings from, you know, 1300s or something like that in Albania. Uh, you know, some, some, and so I'm listening and I'm like, okay, this is so dull. Like, you have to listen to this every day. And I'm like, and I'm looking around, I'm like, none of these guys are listening. They're not listening to this. I mean, who could be listening to this? And then the guy, when he, he said something that was kind of humorous. I missed it, but everybody started chuckling. And I realized that they had such inner sense of silence that they were able to take it all in. They were listening. And I, I tuned out after about a minute. But I realized part of that is because my mind's so busy. Anyhow, we'll, co we'll come back to that a little bit. Um, oh, David, uh, you used to go to a monastery in Belgium for lunch with their excellent locally made beer, ham and, uh, and uh, water. Yes, uh, no, and, 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 and great beer. Yes, the monks and their beer. We, I will introduce to you tonight a prayer, a blessing for beer. Some of you have been wondering. Uh, <laughs> we will talk about that tonight. Okay, so... If you go to a monastery today, in, in many ways, there's a deep connection to what a monastery would have looked like hundreds of years ago. Not much has, has changed. In fact, um, this monastery, mo monasteries as an institution, has a long, long history. And they maintain their tradition probably more rigorously than any other institution today. But... To modernize, a monastery seems very, very strange. But historically, this was not always the case. Historically, most societies, at the center of every town, was a monastery. Monasteries made up, you know, I know in England, a, a, a monastic lands made up, I think at one point, almost one quarter of the land in England. That's a lot of monasteries. Um, whenever there was a monastery that was established, there would be usually uh, a town that would grow up around it. Why? Why would a town grow up around a monastery? Can you guess? Why do you think people would want to hang around a monastery? What's that? Yeah, they, they could get some help. They could get some alms. Like, it would be um, a way to maybe get some alms or some money if you were short. Yeah. What else? Like it. 
It was so economic. <coughs> oh, yeah, that was very good. Yeah. Theo, right? Yeah. Oh, gonna bring a tear to my eye. Yes, we're going to talk about the, uh, the fall of Rome. It was the only place of stability. It was also the only place with books. It was, so if you wanted to read, uh, the only people who were literate were, were many of the monks. And so if you had children, you would take your children to the monasteries to learn how to read. Right? So it was a place of culture. It was also a place of, of, of literacy for spiritual blessing, for healing. Okay, good. Is it possible because that uh, in the Jewish the uh, house of God was in the middle of the city? It's some kind of continuity of that one? Oh, that's a great uh, question now. Right? So is it because, uh, the, is it a carry-on from the synagogue and the synagogue's role in the city? I, I don't think so. I don't think so. I could be mistaken, but I don't think so because I think it kind of developed... De uh, there, there's a long period between you know, the time where the early Christians went to synagogues and then the, the rise of, of, of monasticism. So I would say it would be a separate development. Um, yeah, I mean, that's where skilled trades, as you were saying, Susan, yeah, there are centers of learning, monks copied, illuminated, cataloged, um, large libraries, kept large libraries. If you wanted a book, the place to get a book is a monastery. Um, and some people, guys like Thomas Cahill, who are like... Um, these historians, um, even argues that uh, it was the monasteries that saved Western civilization. He wrote a book called How the Irish Saved Civilization. Now Cahill's Irish, so he's probably a little, uh, little biased, but I think there's something to it because when Europe fell into darkness, the only places of stability were these monasteries. Now, for our purposes tonight, we're gonna be looking at the spiritual legacy of these monasteries. And I think the legacy that we can get, um, the legacy that we can get from, from monasticism, uh, I think in our tradition as evangelicals, we can learn a lot. Uh, we can learn a lot because, and I think, you know what, I think the monks could learn from evangelicals as well. So uh, as evangelicals, in our church, we are an evangelical church. Does anybody know what I mean when I say evangelical? It's a swear word in our culture, but does anybody actually know what, it, what, 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 I, what are the characteristics of, of an evangelical? Sharing the gospel. Sharing the gospel, right. Yeah, so that's one of them. And loud sometimes. And sorry? And loud sometimes. And loud sometimes, yes. Center on the gospel, good. And evangelical is actually a movement that emerges out of the 18th century and has four characteristics, right? Very quickly. One, you share the gospel. So it, the, the news is so good it needs to be shared. The cross stands at the very center of reality. The cross is absolutely important. The Bible is the word of God and has authority. And this news is so important that every person needs to come to a personal response to it. Those are the four main characteristics. And so you have lots of churches that are evangelical, including our own. Now, one of the things about the evangelical church is we like to be busy. We can get things done. We do food banks better than any. Like we love our, we, we are busy and we get things done. Where we struggle is being quiet and ministering out of silence and prayer. Most evangelicals is like, okay, what do you need to do? And you go do it. 
But I think we can learn something from the monastic movement, especially some of its, its um, understanding of rhythm, uh, especially the connection between work and prayer. Okay, so rhythm is going to be our theme tonight. Now, rhythm is not new or unique to monasticism. You see rhythm woven into the very fabric of creation. God created the world. And if you read this Genesis account of creation, there's a rhythm, isn't there? God created this, and it was day one, and it was good. God created this, day two, and it was good. Right? There's a rhythm. And built within the very story of scripture is the rhythm of a week six days and one day rest right six days one day rest now it's interesting that rhythm of seven days six and one is not actually based on anything natural it's not based on the movement of the heavens or the planets or anything like that it is god's revelation of himself god ordained it and so you see in the Old Testament, you see um, within um, Judaism, within, um, within Israel, you see rhythms throughout the year. And so there'd be certain feasts that would be celebrated throughout the year. What are some of the feasts that would be celebrated? Tabernacles, yeah, the tabernacles. what else? Passover. Passover, Yom Kippur, right? The Feast of Purim. And all these all these uh, Pentecost, yes, all these feasts would uh, mark a moment where they would remember God's work in the world. And so, and so the early church actually picks up on some of this rhythm. In the early church, the, the, the rhythm carries on. So you have uh, early Christians getting up early on Sunday morning, on the Lord's Day and worshiping, right? You have Easter and Holy Week where people would remember the, the death of, of, uh, of Jesus Christ and his resurrection. Pentecost, the giving of the Holy Spirit. Um, later on, Christmas, where we remember the incarnation. And you have this Christian calendar. Um, and in many, uh, some of you have grown up in traditions where you have, where you mark the Christian year. Anybody grow up in a liturgical tradition? I know, Irene, you have, yeah. So you guys all, you know, we're in the what? Uh, what week of ordinary time? I think we're in the, I have to look it up. I heard it this morning. What is it? Something like that. <laughs> We're somewhere. In, yeah, so, but I mean, yeah, there are some traditions that have a much more a rhythm focus uh, to, to, the, to the church year. And, and the whole purpose of this is just to constantly remind you of the story and the key people in the story of Jesus. Now, what I want to do is talk a little bit um, be a little geeky let's talk a little bit about history we have to do a little bit of history just because it's fun right um it is fun right so we're going to be talking about um how how these monasteries came about and what role these rhythm had within these monasteries when we left off our story last week we were stuck out in the desert right and so you had a bunch of people out in the desert doing strange things like sitting on top of poles for long periods of time and just doing some weird things right but the problem i mean not the problem the good thing is that human beings by their very nature are social and you read about these desert monks the word monk means solitary you're supposed to be by yourself that's what the word means 
But invariably, when you read about all these monks in the desert, they're all hanging out, they're all talking with each other. It's like, wait a minute, you're supposed to be solitary. There's a whole lot of you hanging out together if you're supposed to be all by yourself. Well, I think it's because as human beings, we, we long for community. We long to be connected to each other. And sure enough, out of this desert monasticism, organized monasteries start to get formed. And I'll, I'll give you a couple names of some people who started this off. There's a guy named Pacomius. He's the first guy. Uh, Pacomius um, lived in the third century uh, and into the fourth century. He grew up in, in Egypt. He was a military guy. He grew up pagan. Didn't know anything about Christianity. And this fellow named Pacomius, uh, Pacomius, at a young age, he was sent off to join the, the military, but he met some Christians. Uh, because he hated the military, he was miserable, and these Christians comforted him. And, and, and he loved the Christians so much, he loved uh, these guys so much, he said, you know what, if I ever get out of the military, I want to become a Christian, I want to dedicate my life to just following Jesus. Well, surprise, surprise, he actually was able to get out of the military early. And so he decides to connect with Christians. He, uh, he was baptized. He was taught the faith. And then he did what everybody else did. Hey, I'll go out to the desert because that's what you're supposed to do and kind of live as a hermit. Um, but then after a while, he said, you know what? We should build an enclosure and invite people to join us. So he and his brother, John, they built this enclosure and they said, all right, if you guys want to live a life dedicated to Jesus, come and join us. And so a bunch of people joined them and they're really annoying and Pacomius is like, all right, everybody out, <laughs> let's start again. So they started again, and the second time, it actually worked. And he set up, he says, okay, if we're going to live together, we have to have some rules. We have to have some regulations. So what are some rules? And so you can actually read Pacomius's rules for, now you can see his military background, come like, yeah, this is pretty intense, Pacomius. Like, they're pretty strict rules. Um, some of the things that they would do, <laughs> they would uh, assign two monks, uh, to a small room is kind of like first year university, right? Uh, you're, you're in a room and uh, there's every few rooms where they had a supervisor. Anyhow, Pacomius starts this off and his daily life would include work and devotion. The morning would begin with prayers, followed by labor, followed by sewing and weaving and carpentry. And so prayer and work seem to characterize it. What they would eat would be bread, cooked veggies, and dried fruit, pretty much, and, and drink water. Yeah, it's not much of a diet, but uh, it was the olden days, right? The second guy um, who's quite important is this fellow named John Cassian. I really like John Cassian. And he's a, he's a monk that gets things going um, in modern-day France. And uh, he sets up um, a monastery and, he, and, and this, this monastery becomes quite influential. There's another guy named Martin of Tours. I want to tell you about him just because he's kind of interesting. Um, this guy, Martin of Tours, he grew up in Italy. And at the age of, eight, age of eight, he was sent off to be trained as a soldier. Eight years old. Yeah, I know. By the age of 12, he had a profound experience of God. And he asked his parents, he begs his parents to let him become a Christian. He was um, arrested at the age of 15 and he was forced to spend his days in the military. So again, another military guy. 
Now, there's an interesting story about Martin of Tours. I don't know if you know about this. The story goes is Martin of Tours, um, he was entering a city and he's riding a horse and he had this cloak. He wore this you know, cloak to keep him warm and there's a beggar. And the beggar was freezing cold. And he said, and the beggar said, can you give me something to stay warm? And the story goes is that Martin of Tours cut his cloak into two and gave him half the cloak to keep him warm. Well, that night, Martin of Tours has a vision. And in the vision, Jesus speaks to him and says, you know that beggar that was sitting at the city gate? That wasn't a beggar, that was me. And what you did to the beggar, you did to me. Now, it's interesting because I, I, later on, Martin of Tours sets up a community, a monastic community that becomes quite large. But one of the things that this community treasured, they were able to find was what? His cloak. And so they looked after the cloak. And the cloak meant a lot because it goes back to a story. Now, in fact, there's people within the, the, within the monastery who were in charge of looking after the cloak. And there, the, the word cloak, if you're Italian, correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe the word is capelli. And those who would look after the cloak were called capelloni. And it's from the word capelloni, those who look after the cloak, we get the modern world, or word, does, do you know which word we get? Chaplain. Chaplain, yeah, that's where we get the, the term. So whenever you hear about a chaplain, that word actually goes way back to the story of Martin Tours. Now, I just think that's fun. That's just, that's just such an interesting, interesting story. Okay, so the whole purpose of these, of these monasteries was to nurture spiritual rhythm and growth, to, to grow in uh, more and more like Christ. Now, once we get to the 5th century, as Theo pointed out, this is really interesting because something happens in 410 A.D. Any... What happens in 410 A.D., Barry? The sack of Rome, where you had this, this, this thug, this barbarian, a guy named Alaric, goes into Rome and he sacks the city for days, days on end, burns lots of it, pillages and does just horrible. Now the thing is, this is a 9-11 moment for the Roman Empire. It's the Roman Empire for 700 years. Nothing has ever happened. It's the Roman Empire. It's Rome. Rome is untouchable, but not anymore. And this, this event marked the beginning of the end of the Roman Empire, at least in the West. And what happens is uh, the Roman Empire basically divides into two in the West. All hell breaks loose. You got barbarians going up and down everywhere, just sacking and looting and burning and pillaging. And the West falls into an age called <laughs> the Dark Ages, right? Um, and so this is a really important event. And it's important for the rise of monasticism because the only place in a world that was full of chaos that offered stability were these communities. And so these communities were set up 
And they were, they were quite appealing. They, they, and that's, I think, another reason why people set up shop and li- live close to them, because they were the only anchors in a world that was unmoored. So when you think about monasticism, you think about monks and the, and, the, and the monasteries, is there anything to you, is there anything appealing about it, is, especially when we look at our own unstable world? Is there something that draws you to it? There's probably things that you don't like, you know, the celibacy and the food's not great. I don't know. <laughs> but is there anything, is there anything that, that draws you? Laura? There is something peaceful. And there's something about the fact that it has been around for so long. And in a world that everything's changing, everything's changing. Every time you get your news feed, something's, you know, another, you know, another missile test in North Korea today and another, you know, ship going between China and Taiwan. And, and, and everything's, everything's up in, in, in the air right now. Uh, more COVID or whatever it happens to be. There's something appealing about it. Yeah, very. It's the ritual that's stability. Yeah. Order in the midst of chaos. Yeah, and somebody put it, uh, stability. And uh, what's the other word I can't quite see? Simplicity. I'm, oh, simplicity, yeah. Stabilization, very good. And solitude? Solitude, too, and quiet. Mm-hmm. Quiet in a noisy world. I'll tell you, I think there's something quite, uh, quite attractive. So, what happens in these monasteries? Um, the ones that were around, there'd be a lot of prayer, a lot of fasting, Lots of, there'd be music. Uh, and, and just as an aside, monasticism in the history of the church actually gave, it's going to sound strange, it gave um, power to women. Ah, you didn't think that, right? Yeah, it did. Uh, because monasticism gives an option to women. So, if a woman joined a monastery she, and she had money, if she got married, all her money went to her husband. But if she joined a monastery, she could freely, freely give money to the monastery or not, or it didn't have to go to her husband. And the fact that a woman now had a choice to not get married, there's another option, was unheard of. And so some people look back at this rise in monasticism and saying this is one of the first times um, where women were starting to get a little more option in their life. Anyhow, that's just an aside. I, I, I think it's kind of surprising and interesting. Discipleship would, have, would attract you, yeah. So Benedict. Benedict is the guy we're going to look at tonight. Uh, Benedict is, a, is the most uh, famous guy behind monasticism. Benedictine um, monasteries are like, the rule of St. Benedict is probably more prevalent than any other rule. Ironically, we don't know a lot about Benedict's life. <laughs> we know that Benedict, uh, we know a little bit because a guy wrote a biography on him, but that's about all we have, a little bit of information. We know that Benedict traveled to Rome, studied in Rome's classical schools at the age of 17. He, uh, he studied, and, but one of the things about Benedict that bothered him 
his, he was distressed by his classmates because while Benedict wanted to study, all his classmates wanted to do was party, which I think is kind of reassuring that things never change, right? Uh, things never change. So Benedict gives up studying law and politics and left the city to pursue a life of solitary devotion. Yeah. And um, his reputation for godliness begins to precede him. Like he's trying to live alone, but this always happens and people want to join him. And so finally you get these monks and they said, Benedict, Benedict, will you not lead us? Start a monastery. And Benedict says, fine, I will start a monastery. You guys, okay. So here's the rules. This is what it's going to look like. So he kind of laid it out. And all the people that wanted Benedict to be their abbot, to be their leader, is like, yeah, this is too hard. And they try to poison Benedict. And so Benedict's like, I'm out of here. I'm leaving. And tries it again. Starts a monastery. In fact, he starts, I think, at least 13 monasteries. And one of the most famous monasteries, Benedictine monasteries, does anybody know what it's called? Yeah, sounds like a James Bond movie, Monte Cassino, yeah. Uh, Monte Cassino, yeah, it's quite, quite, quite beautiful. I think, it was recon- I think it was destroyed during World War II, but it was re- reconstructed. It was, wasn't it? Just, just as an aside, the destruction of Monte Cassino that inspired the uh, American It was because of that. So Barry just made an interesting point. He says it was because of the destruction of Monte Cassino in World War II that led to the rise of the Monuments Men who made it their mission to protect European culture during the rest of the war. That's, oh, that's fascinating. That's really good. Good. Yeah, I saw that. I haven't seen the movie, but I knew that's, yeah, that's what it was about. I didn't know that was a connection. So Benedict writes the rule. He writes this rule, and this rule is very successful. Why is it so successful? Well, Benedict's rule was, had common sense. It was flexible. If you read the rule, it's actually quite, it's not that intense. There is discipline, but the focus is on community. Um, community is so important. If you want to grow in your faith, you need to do life together. Now, that's a contrast, right? Up until now, it's like, I don't need anybody. I'm just going to go live in the desert, and I'll be by myself. And I... But you, when you're stuck with yourself, that's, you're not necessarily going to grow spiritually. You need people around you who love you and who can point out your foibles, <laughs> right? That's how you grow spiritually. And so, for, Bene- for Benedict, he recognized that monks living in isolation without a shepherd is not healthy. And sometimes I meet people, and uh, I talk to them. I said, are you a Christian? Yes, I'm a Christian. What church do you go to? Well, I don't go to church. I don't go to church. You know what? For me, being among the trees, that's church for me. And just walking along a trail, that's church. And I'm like, you know what? I love walking along a trail. It is quite powerful. But it's not church. You need people around you. You need to be in community. Because it's only when you're in community can you grow. And Benedict saw that. He saw that 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 was absolutely key. 
And so he emphasized that everybody um, would hold things in common. Benedictine monasteries um, would, uh, they would farm and they would uh, raise a lot of food and they would supply all their needs and they would also be able to give lots of it away. And so that was really important. Benedict says this, he says, he says, above all, the evil practice of private ownership must be uprooted and removed from the monastery. We mean that without an order from the, from the abbot, no one may presume to give, receive, or retain anything as his own. So nobody could own anything. Interesting. Um, Yeah, and the whole focus, um, the authority was a big deal. Now, authority is not a swear word. Authority is, is really important, especially in a world that's falling apart. You know, in our day and age, we, we, we distrust authority. We, we spurn authority because, you know, nobody should tell me what to do. But when you're living in a world that's quickly falling apart, it's good to have someone in authority. So long as they lead the authority, they have authority well. And so the abbot in the monastery, though he had authority, he also was responsible for the spiritual well-being of all the monks. If anything good went off the rails, it was on him. And so he took that responsibility. And so the overall goal of the abbot was to help each monk grow in their love and their knowledge and their walk with Jesus Christ. So prayer and work were really important. Ora et labora, prayer and work. And so the, the whole day was, was, uh, was, was rhythmed around this prayer and work. Now, I put in your notes, and for those of you who've taken my church history before, you've seen this before. Uh, it's just, I think it's, I think it's a good model for your week next week, in case you're wondering how your week should look like. Um, you may want to adopt this. Uh, so a monk's daily schedule, all it requires is getting up at 2.30 a.m. Um, now, I'm usually awake at 2.30, but I'm not waking up at 2.30. Uh, you'd get up in the morning at 2.30, and you'd gather for prayer. And then from 3.45 to 5 a.m., you would do some private reading and prayer. <laughs> I'll tell you what I'd be doing at that time. Um, and then you'd pray at dawn, and then you'd pray at sunrise, and, and you'd work, and there's communal prayer, and there's private reading, and there's, but there's a siesta, I like that. It's only 45 minutes, but there's a siesta. And then there's work for three, it's over three hours. Then you have a meal and prayer, and then you go to bed at 8.30, which makes sense if you're up at 2.30. The uh, winter schedule's a little bit more lenient, but still, okay, so... Maybe we won't adopt that for our life, but, uh, but there is a rhythm. There is a rhythm. And during a week, I think it would be during one week, the monks would recite all 150 prayers in a week, I believe. Now imagine reciting, singing, all 150 psalms every week. I know one fellow at the, at, the, um, at the Abbey in Mission, Father Mark, and he's been there for 
40 years. And can you imagine for 40 years, every week, singing every song? That's, that's going to start going deep, I think. But I like Benedict because he's, he's quite realistic. He says, and I think pastors can learn from Benedict. He says, our prayer ought to be short <laughs> and pure unless it happens to be prolonged by the inspiration of divine grace. In community, however, let prayer be very short. I think we should send this to all of our small groups. <laughs> what were the effects of monasticism, quickly? They brought order in a very unstable world. They brought stability, education. They brought prayer. And uh, I have in your notes your beer blessing, right? In case you need to know. Bless, O Lord, this creature beer, which thou hast deigned to produce from the fat of grain, that it may be a salutary remedy to the human race, and grant through the invocation of thy holy name that whoever shall drink it may gain health in body and peace and soul. Through Christ our Lord. Amen. Let's drink up. <laughs> Now, one of the other things, and I, I just don't want to, you know, paint this beautiful picture of monasticism. We do know that over time, monasticism becomes very, very corrupt. And you, there is a lot of beer drinking, and there is a lot of, and there, like, it, it does get corrupt. I get that. The rule, though, the rules, it's Benedict's rule, that, that, and the, the rhythm is what I want to draw from. Um, Today, there's about 25,000 Benedictine monks and nuns, as well as over 5,000 Cistercians. There's another Benedictine. But one of the things happening is there's more and more people today, I don't know if you realize this, there's more and more people today who, yes, they're not joining monasteries, but they're becoming associated with monasteries and and, and incorporating the rhythm and the rule to their life, even though they're not part of monasteries. So they're, they're called oblates, or they're, 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 they're related to, to a monastery. Um, and it's especially popular among young people today. And so I was reading just, just the growth, and I had a friend of mine who pointed this out, that this was probably going to happen in this next generation that there's a real desire among young adults to learn the rhythms from these monastic movements. They don't want to join a monastery, but they want to be associated with it. Um, and I think there's something to that. And I think it's the rhythm, part of it, is the rhythm of life. Uh, Laurie, is it, yeah, is it the faith or the ritual? Yeah. Well, and, and ritual's not necessarily a bad thing. Um, habits not necessary. I think if, if you're doing that at the expense of focusing on Jesus, then that is a problem. But the rhythm of, of, of life, of, of work and prayer, I think is important. Now, one of the places I went to a number of years ago is I went to uh, um, Labrie in England. Has anybody heard of Labrie? Hilda, you've heard of Labrie. Has anybody ever heard of Francis Schaeffer? Yeah, so Francis Schaeffer started these, um, these homes, and they're all around the world. Uh, I think the first one was in Switzerland. I think that's the, the main one. 
Uh, so I went to the one in England. And what you do is you go there, and I stayed in this Victorian mansion down in the south part of England. And I stayed there for a number of days, but people stay there for months. And if you're, it doesn't matter what age you are, I was probably one of the older people there. Um, there's a lot of young adults, but they, what they do is they stay there for months and they have a rhythm. And the rhythm is study, prayer, and work. And so in the morning, I would get up in this Victorian mansion with one outlet at the top of the stairs. I'd take the vacuum cleaner and, and vacuum like four flights of stairs in this big, you know, Downton Abbey kind of floors. I would do that in the morning or I'd clean the bathrooms in the morning, but in the afternoon you would, you'd study and you'd pray. And you do this and, you'd, and you would eat in community. And when you gather together, instead of being silent, in this case, they would say, okay, here's a topic that we want to discuss. This would be a theological topic. And we'd have a conversation around the table. And then we'd go to bed and we'd do that every day. And I, I stayed there for, for, for a week and it was, it was quite, quite a meaningful experience. You should go on one of those. You really should. Yeah, I was telling Hannah that she needs to go as well. Um, it's, it's a really cool experience. But there's something to that rhythm. You eating together, praying and working. There's something to that. It's called Labri, so L apostrophe A-B-R-I. You should go. I'll tell you about it afterwards. I'll tell you about it afterwards. It's, it's so cool, and it's not expensive, actually, because you're working a lot there, too. But it was, yeah, I'll, I'll even show you some pictures if you want. Um, but prayer, what does prayer do? Prayer draws us to God and creates the conditions um, for, for God to send us and to use us in the world. The vision out of monasticism is to be a contemplative in action. And that is out of our prayer life, only out of our quietness and our prayer do we enter into action and not until we spend time in prayer. Prayer centers us and quiets us. Um, the work energizes us. Prayer restores us to God. And work allows us to participate in God's restoration of the world. And so this rhythm of retreat engagement, retreat engagement is really um, I think it's, it's, it's quite powerful. And you see this in Jesus' life, right? Where Jesus would withdraw and then before he would engage again. And I think as evangelicals, and I am an evangelical, but I think we divide prayer and work at our peril. Prayer without work is empty, but work without prayer is tiring and directionless. And one of the characteristics, I think, of the church today is that a lot of people get tired very quickly. You're doing a hundred million different things. You're volunteering here, and you get this going on, this going on, this going on. And again, in the church, we can be quite busy, but we get tired. And so this rhythm of prayer and work is really, really important. Monastic rhythm helps us strike the right balance between the two. Now, one more thing that I think I want to talk, that I would like to talk about, and I've talked about this before, but I think it's such an important concept that we don't really hear very much about today. And it's connected to monasticism, and it's connected to rhythm, and that is the noonday demon, ascidia. Has anybody ever heard of ascidia? Have you heard of it, Val? 
Oh, maybe, yeah. Acedia is, is a really interesting idea. Have you heard of it, Nestor? Oh, really? Yeah, I guess, it, I guess there are books on Acedia, but it's actually, um, it's, it's a, it comes out of the monastic movement, this, this, this idea of Acedia. Uh, Acedia is, I think, is best described as slothful activity. <laughs> it is the sense of being really bored, restless, inattentive, and really busy. Which I think sounds a lot like our culture. Um, but acedia is really an important concept. In the olden days, it was called the noonday demon. The noonday demon. And so one guy described it this way, this guy named Evagrius of Pontus. He describes it this way. He says, the demon of acedia, also called the noonday demon, is the most oppressive of all demons. He attacks the monk at the fourth hour, 10 a.m., and besieges the soul until the eighth hour, 2 p.m. First, he makes it appear that the sun moves slowly or not at all, or that the day seems to be 50 hours long. Then he compels the monk to look constantly towards the windows, to jump out of his cell, and to watch the sun to see how far it is from the ninth hour, 3 p.m. To look this way and that, he deploys every device in order to have the monk leave his cell and flee the stadium. So, what it is, is you think about when you're at work and at two o'clock in the afternoon, you crash and you start, you get up and you wander the hallways and is anybody around and what's going on? And it's like, and you're looking at the clock and it's only 2.30 and you're not done till five o'clock. That's why you have the ritual, the rhythm of a coffee break, yes. But this sense of acedia is a really interesting concept because what takes place during the day in the afternoon, when you get that afternoon, oh, I can't believe it's only two o'clock, you get that at two o'clock in your lifespan. And so they're talking about monks. They're talking about monks who said, I love being a monk. This monk thing is great. I love being part of this community. And then five years in, it's like, this is really hard. <laughs> I don't really like my brothers. Um, you know, and, and, and they can't keep going. Put differently, it's like a midlife crisis. I think midlife crises have a lot to do with acedia than anything else. It's this sense of boredom. And what happens with acedia is that you're busy doing lots of things, but you're not doing important things. You're not doing things for your soul. And acedia is what you feel when you've been on Facebook for an hour. <laughs> right? And, if, uh, and, and, and what goes with acedia are feelings of fatigue, dejection, oppression, discouragement, disgust, and frenetic activity. I think one of the characteristics of the modern age is acedia. And I, I, I had a buddy of mine, I don't even know if he's here tonight uh, online, he's from uh, Alberta. We texted each other, it was in the afternoon, and he was, like, he was kind of bored. I said, are you feeling acedia? 
I said, let me tell you about the noonday demon. So that's why we got through our, noon, our, our afternoon. So acedia is weariness, not just for any work. But acedia is when we lose focus on God and the work that God is calling us to do. So it goes back, Val, what you were saying about, you know, to, to, be, uh, to have a life of service where you are living in response to who God is. Acedia is doing lots of things, but not really paying attention to God. Being distracted from what really matters. And so a guy like Thomas Aquinas, he once described sloth or acedia as a wandering of the mind after illicit things. And one of the ways to react and to respond um, yeah, is food coma acedia? Not quite, not quite. Depends how, why you have it, yeah. Um, one of the ways through acedia is rhythm. It is by embracing spiritual rhythms in our life that you and I can get through the noonday demon. Now, I know a lot of you, I know all of you online and who are here, and I know we, we, we will all struggle with acedia. We'll all struggle with this noonday demon. And I think in a world where we're so distracted by so many things that we can be doing a hundred things, but we're not doing needful things. Remember what Jesus says to Mary. What he says to Martha, he says, Martha, Martha, you're worried about so many things. Mary is doing one thing needful. She's listening to me. So, let's conclude our time by asking an important question. How can we develop monastic-like rhythms in our life without joining a monastery? Now, if you want to join a monastery, go ahead. Um, that's up to you. Um, I think a few things that we need to look at. I think we need to recognize the importance and dignity of work. One of the negative consequences of COVID is that an entire segment of the population uh, was deprived of work. And, uh, you know, I'm thankful the government was able to help with, uh, with CERB or whatever. Um, but work is not just about earning money. We were created to work. And there's something about work that is important. And when, when you're getting money and you're not working, I think it affects your soul. You know, there's the other ditch, right? And that's overwork or workaholic. And that's not what, we, we know that that's a problem. But work is important. And so recognize the importance and the dignity of work. And it doesn't have to be just employed work. It's just work, working in a garden or working, with it, working to take care of your, your, your aging parents or whatever it happens to be. Recognize the importance of prayer as an urgent discipline to cultivate a life of prayer and learn how the two go together. And so look at your schedule over a typical week. What can you do to build in healthier rhythms of prayer and work? 
What would that look like in your life? Now, I've discovered something, and I've shared it with uh, Denise. She and I, have, uh, we, we both use this. And you don't have to. I'm just throwing it out there. It's, it's kind of a cool app that we came across. And it's, uh, I think uh, one of our elders gave it to me. And it's called Pray As You Go. Now, it's a little, there's little parts of it that are a little Catholic-y, and you just spit out the bones, right? You know, the, when it gets too catholic you just, unless you want to be Catholic, that's fine. But, um, but it's, it's, it's a way to kind of, s- it begins your day with contemplation and reflection. I find it quite helpful. Would you agree, Denisa? It's so good, yeah. Like, I, I'd never heard of it before, and somebody pointed it out, and, and I listened to it, and, and the music's quite interesting, and, and they read scripture a couple times, and they ask very good questions about the scripture. And so I find it quite... But what my point is simply this, is do whatever it takes. to Build in some rhythms into your life. Maybe divide your day into segments where at certain types of times of the day, you just pray, even for two or three minutes. At the end of the day, reflect on what your life, what your day with God was like. Read scripture deeply. Sometimes we, 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 we read on the fly, right? Um, say, oh, I need to read some of my Bible, and so you read a verse very quickly, and, and, and you've forgotten it before you even head out you know, to hop in the car, right? So, I mean, take some time to read deeply. Practice um, what is called uh, Lectio Divina, which is uh, divine reading, which is reading very carefully. It's, it's reading deeply, reading it over and over again and listening to what the Spirit is saying as you're reading. When, just some, a couple tips on how to uh, move forward on this is... Um, Keep your prayer time short. A lot of people feel guilty about not praying. And they're like, I'm going to start starting tomorrow, one hour. I'm, I'm getting serious. Well, after day two, you're going to be frustrated, right? Um, you know, just try to pray often. And maybe one time a day, try to spend a little bit more time in prayer. Make your prayer time meaningful. Yeah. Um, it's funny, I, 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 when I go for walks in, in my neighborhood and I, I kind of peek into my neighbor's, not, not into yours, Nestor. <laughs> I don't peek into your place. Neighbor, Nestor's my neighbor. Um, but I look into people's places sometimes when you walk by because all you see is the size of the TV that's in the center of their place. And so all you see is the TV. And I find that in our homes, we, we, we go to great effort to make sure that this is front and center and significant in our house. But how, often, how much effort do we make to, to carve out a place of contemplation and reflection and prayer? We should, even if it's a nook. I used to have a room, and, and then Matthew moved into it, my son. <laughs> so I lost my room. Um, so I have, a, I have a spiritual nook. But in this nook, I have certain things that just help me remember certain things. So I have an hourglass. I know it's kind of goofy, but it's kind of cool. And so when I pray, I just turn the hourglass. And it just teaches me and reminds me to number my days. On the wall, I have some uh, beautiful um, 
uh, from the, uh, the Book of Kells, some, some beautiful artwork of, um, that the um, uh, Celtic monks had done. Uh, Sharon, you gave me those, and I had those up in my... my yeah, and so you, you do whatever makes your space, even if it's a nook, it reminds you that this is time you're going to spend with God. Do you have a place like that in your home? Yeah? Yeah, it's important. Because that comfy couch. It's got a, and, and I think it is biblical to have good coffee uh, by your side. Yeah, it's important. And prepare ahead for your time of prayer. Take a few moments to settle down. Don't just dive into prayer, <laughs> which I often do here. Basically, what I'm teaching you tonight is like, I have to teach to myself first, because sometimes like, okay, I got to get praying, and then I, I got to get going. Um, and you just got to take a moment. And here's the thing. If you sit down to pray, and you take 60 seconds, and count them, 60 seconds, look at your watch, 60 seconds just to breathe before you pray. I think God takes that 60 seconds and he expands it. And, he, it, and it just helps you get ready to be attentive to what, he, what he's about to say to you. Pray about what is on your heart, not what you think you ought to be praying about. <laughs> That's important. You come to God as you are, you know. You don't, because it's not like God's fooled, right? It's like, oh Lord, oh great omnipotent one, I come with the cares of the world really you got an issue in your in your life and God knows that you have that issue so you may as well just tell him just be honest and just tell him even if you don't feel like being there lay it out and learn to be fully present when you pray it's easy for our minds to wander don't feel guilty about your minds wandering but just take all those distractions and all the wandering and just say God my mind's wandering I put this I give this to you Don't get angry at distractions. <laughs> it's always ironic when you're trying to pray and you're trying to be quiet and somebody disrupts you and you're like, what can't you see that I'm praying? You know, get out! You know, I'm praying. You know, and you get all mad and it's like, yeah, I can't believe you're right. You know, all right, anyhow. Uh, no, you just, you don't get mad at distractions. You, you just bring them in before God, right? And I think, again, I think, uh, I think in monasticism, this rhythm, bringing a rhythm to our life of prayer and work is something that we would do well to integrate into our lives. So that's what I have to share with you tonight. Any questions or comments? Yeah, Denise. Oh, oh yeah, the monastic heart. So... Um, Denise is uh, telling us about a book called The Monastic Heart by Joan Chistister, Chistister or something. Yeah. And it lays out um, different disciplines that we can do while in our ordinary lives that would have built Oh, yeah. Yeah. So it talks about everyday spirituality. And there's another book by this one, I forget the woman's name. I bought the book for Karen. Um, and it's on everyday spirituality or everyday liturgy of everyday life. It is, so there's a liturgy of brushing your teeth or liturgy. It's quite interesting, yeah. There's another book called Soul Feast, which is quite helpful. Uh, I really like that one. Uh, do you guys got any questions online? Just type, type them out. If you have. 
David, the schedule, would that be six days a week and then Sunday, Sabbath would be different? Or? I don't think so. I think it was pretty much every day. Yeah, I think it was every day. Probably on Sunday they would have maybe a longer period at a certain part of the day. Um, and, and maybe the actual, yeah, the prayers would look different on, on the Sunday, I think. Yeah, Susan. Yeah, well, no, Mike hit this last week. He did talk about silence and solitude. Yeah, that's okay. Well, no, that's okay. I mean, yeah, Mike, Mike hit it well. But silence and solitude is... Um, in a world of noise and where we're afraid to be alone is one of the great antidotes to the effects of the modern world. And many people are afraid to be alone. Many people go through life with a soundtrack. And there's, there's now, and you guys know this, there's, there's, there's music that we can put into our showers now, the very few places where it was kind of quiet is no longer quiet. There's people who, who can only sleep with, with white noise. I'm one of those people, which concerns me. Um, the importance of silence and solitude, there's no better pushback against the effects of our modern world than silence and solitude today. And so to carve it out as much as you can. And, and, and there's interesting ways you can do that. If you have a commute, uh, rather than putting on the radio, just have nothing on. And just let that be your silence. I'm trying to build more of that into my life, but it's, it's, it's really important to... Uh, if you cannot be alone, you need solitude. And I know a lot of, a lot of people cannot be alone. Or if they are alone, they always have something on, something going on, right? Some people with, with the news station on all the time. There's no better way to destroy your soul than to have 24-hour news on all the time. Uh, that'll kill you. Somebody asked about Lectio Divina. Let me just share what this looks like. There's actually four parts to Lectio. It's, it's, it's this practice of deep reading. The first practice, and you can try this tonight or tomorrow. Okay, so here's, here's, here's what you do. The first part is you read a passage of scripture. Don't make it too long. Don't make it too short. So just, you know, a few verses. So read a passage of scripture. That's the lectio, that means reading. The second part is called meditatio, and that is where you meditate on the scripture. So after you read it once, you just, just read it, then you read it again, and then you ask yourself a question, what, what sometimes the language is, what shimmers, or what, what kind of stands out in this passage? What, what has gotten your attention? It could be a phrase, it could be a word, it could be something that stands out, right? The third part is called contemplatio. And that, and that part is when you read it again, you ask the question, okay, God, this has stood out to me for some reason. What, what are you saying to me? What, what are you trying to say to me? 
And the last part, so you read it the fourth time, and it's called, uh, I think, oratorio. Oratorio? Yeah. And that is prayer. And that is where you pray back to God, say, I think this is what you're saying. I give this back to you. Now, the, when you do this, what it does is it, it, it helps you remember that the word you're reading is the living word and that God the Spirit speaks through his word. Now, you do it with an open hand. You don't say, okay, God, I think you're telling me to move to Mexico today through this passage. No, I mean, you, just, you have, still takes discernment and things like that, but you read the word as if, <laughs> as if God really wants to speak through you, speak to you, which he does. But sometimes we read scripture, we try to get through scripture rather than allow scripture to get through us, right? And so to slow down sometimes in our reading and to sink in, and the thing is, if you read a passage four times, carefully and slowly, it's going to start to speak to you. Something's going to start standing. And because you're allowing the Spirit to speak to you. And so that's, that's a practice of reading. I think it's really helpful when we're reading Scripture. And that's why I like this prayer as you go, because you, you go through it and they read it very slowly. They ask some really important questions. Then they read it again and ask you a couple more questions. Um, yeah. Oh, that's your habit uh, too, Naira. That's good. Yeah, pray with your eyes open while driving. <laughs> Thank you, Kevin. Big safety tip, yes. <laughs> Watch and pray, yes. Good safety tip, Kevin. Appreciate it. Any other questions? All right. Well, next week it's going to be interesting. <laughs> Next week we're going to be talking about windows, or kind of like windows. And we're going to talk about, yeah, I won't give it away, but we're going to talk about sac sacramental thinking. Anyhow, it'll be fun. Um, okay, prayer, work, memorizing God's word, studying God's word, doing care, acts, silence, and being alone with God is a difficult balance to learn. Uh, quality and quantity time with God, with each other, are both important. Having more time with God can reach better quality time with God. Yeah, it can. Absolutely. That's good. All right. Well, let's, uh, we've been talking about prayer. Maybe we should try praying. Um, let's spend a few minutes in prayer, and then we'll head on our way. Lord Jesus, we come before you, and you are not a philosophy. You're not a worldview. You're not an idea, but you have been present with us tonight. And Lord, in this world, our hearts long for something that is rooted and grounded. We are tossed all around on the inside. And we long to be moored. And we long to have a rhythm of prayer and work and, and living our lives out of spending time with you. And so, Lord, let us learn from the monastic way of building rhythms into our life that will sustain us so we will make it to the end. Lord, help us to beware of acedia and how it'll trip us up, especially as we get close to the end. 
Keep our hearts alive to the things of you. We pray that, um, that uh, we would sink into your word and that you would sink your truth into our hearts. We pray that that, that stillness and that quietude would, 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 would surround our hearts and that we would live our lives out of that living in, attentive to the still, small voice of the Spirit. That's our desire, Lord. There's so much noise in this world and we're inundated with it and we're tired of it. So bring us, bring us to the place where we can hear the lover of our soul call out our name and we can respond in love. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for participating in this class. If you've been engaging in classes online, but you're not a part of a church community, we would love to have you join us. You can go to cachurch.ca to find out more about getting involved in the life and mission of CA Church.